1: Hey everyone, From the Backburner podcast is sponsored by Birch Barrel. Visit birchbarrel.com for all of your outdoor grilling needs. Uh, If you guys have not seen this, please go check them out. They've got YouTube channels, social media, everything from TikTok to Instagram, Facebook. Uh, It is a really cool grilling system that beats the heck out of your standard kettle grills and everything else. I mean, this this is live fire cooking at its best. Um again visit them at birchbrell.com. If you find something you like, go ahead and use my promo code burner B-U-R-N-E R at checkout for a 10% discount. Hey everyone, from the Backburner Podcast is back. Um I am your host, Jonathan Odell. Welcome back to everyone. Appreciate you guys listening. Um, if you can check out uh Instagram, uh give the page a like, it's from the Backburner Podcast. Uh, we'd really appreciate that. And if uh, you feel like dropping a review on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, we'd appreciate that too. Anyway, so I am coming to you live today from the great state of Alaska. Uh, I'm looking out my window here in Juneau uh, at a very, very steep hill um, that has a a great waterfall on it, uh, out of my room and, and thinking about exactly how steep it is and and how I don't think my knee could take the hike to get up to the top to go try and find a uh, ptarmigan. Um, <laughs> we've been trying to find a, a, a trailhead or something. They've got a tram here, uh, in, in downtown Juneau that takes you up to the top of one of these mountains. And I'm, I, I don't know if I could, uh, uh, sneak my shotgun in on the, on the tram to get to the top. So I could save myself the walk a little bit, but, um, tis the season, uh, upland bird hunting has started here in Alaska and, uh, um, by the time this, uh, this airs, uh, it'll be about mid September. So, uh, um, early dove season will, will kind of be over for, for Arizona and, and, uh, a few other States, but some States continue on. Uh, and then, uh, we'll be looking forward to upland bird season as well as waterfowl season starting. And the reason I'm here in Juneau, um, is to exactly that point. Um, I am up here at the Pacific flyway meetings, um, setting, uh, Doing some regulatory setting uh, stuff here in in Juno for uh, for next season with uh, all my cohorts from the other Western states and and provinces and all that Fish and Wildlife Service and and I'm so glad to be sitting down with uh, my guest today who is who is my counterpart in in Nevada uh, Russell Wustenhoem.
0: That's close. do close. I mean? close. It's close. It's
1: it's almost like saying uh, Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's Wulston Hume.
1: Wulston Hume. Right. It's right. that's just my my slurred speech. I think. And that,
0: and, that, and that opening is probably one of the longest stretches I've gone in my entire life without talking. Just, just so you know. <laughs> probably.
1: <laughs> I've been in the meetings with you all week. I know how it works, man. Well, Russell, what what's your official title over there in Nevada?
0: I am the Migratory Game Bird Staff Specialist, but I also have. Um, a second title, which is fur bearer staff specialist, so I kind of cover both of those realms. Which are people, people look at that and go, "What? How are those two related?" In <laughs> anyway, and they're not. But I like both of them, and it's, it's a good job. It's a good position.
1: Well, Nevada. I mean, Nevada's an interesting state. Obviously, um, you know, to to be able to mix ducks with fur bearing animals, <laughs> you know, as a as a position.
0: Right. Well, I you know I can draw. Rational reasons why they're tied together, so both of them, both of them have some level of federal oversight. Sure, because you know the whole flyway thing that we're doing here, setting you know federal regulation. There's the federal regula- oversight for waterfowl, for fur bears, it's the CITES program, the right. the international trade convention on international convention, trade yeah.
1: and in, in exotic species.
0: Right. So, so and that's you know. I deal with I deal with both of those federal processes. So see, there's a tie. There's there's water involved with both. We got your semi-aquatic fur bears and your <laughs> waterfowl. So you know it, it all works out.
1: Sure, sure. You know that's that's actually a uh, maybe a good place to start um, uh, for those who who don't know. Um, the fur trade in America is is still very very strong, and uh, you know for for all the the faults and figures and stuff. I mean, we're here in Alaska and, and I mean, we, there's a right down the street from us, there's this fur shop that's got like chinchillas and wolves and I mean, right. Right. And, and,
0: And a lot of the souvenir shops have, have pelts. I've seen beaver pelts and wolf pelts and bear pelts and, and all kinds of fox pelts. And there's a, there's a lot of that there that, that, you know, wild West, I guess, for lack of a better term, you know, um, Mindset is still prevalent here,
1: right? Well, I think what's interesting, you know, um, because I'm I'm pretty familiar with the the fur trade, uh, as it were, just because I've been kind of around that community myself in in my career, so. Uh, bobcats in particular—that's one of the sighty species that that you were talking about, right? I mean, that,
0: that's the main one we deal with. in Nevada. We, we, Yeah, we have to get tags for it.
1: But I think what most people don't know is that the country is divided up into quote unquote clades of—you know—they're basically geographic areas where where animals come from, and based on their their pelt quality, their fur quality uh, of the hide. Um, are kind of cordoned off. And so there's, you know, like the Southeast and there's the the Northeast right. and Midwest not stuff. Well, the Western clade, um, coincidentally, so that includes Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Idaho, we're on the Western side of the, the, the Rocky Mountains. Right. Um, our cats are the Western clade, but they draw... The highest prices they're, in the country. They're the best. They're the, the, and Nevada always has the top prices for bobcats, which is interesting. I mean, for a desert state, right? Where we're you know like like so it, more recently, I think. Um, I, and and I don't know exactly where the where the prices have been recently, just because I've been out of the out of the circle for a few years due to COVID and everything else. But I mean, Nevada cats were bringing over a thousand dollars a piece for high quality bobcats,
0: right? So so where we're at right now with that is. So the average—that's including in all the males, all the females, the juvenile cats. You know they're smaller size because it's all—it's all the paid on size. The bigger the cat, the better. Right. And, and so the average is holding right around four hundred, four hundred and fifty bucks. Yeah. Well, so, and,
1: and so yeah, I mean, like so top cats. You know when you're talking about it, these are these are right. big tom males. Right. Um, and the reason why that uh, I've talked to a bunch of fur buyers and stuff who who work with. Uh, you know, a lot of the international trade where, you know, cats go up to the, what used to be the Hudson Bay Company. Right. Um, right. It's, that, you know, kind of sells our furs out to China and Russia and right. all the, that the, stuff.
0: The Canada sale is what it's referred to now. The, yeah. They yeah, all talk about the Canada, about Canada sale. The
1: Canada well, there's sale. the Canada sale, there's the Helsinki sale, there's, you right, know, a but, lot of Right, but all
0: the North American fur go up to Canada, go up into that. that the Canada sell. Right. And then they're distributed to these other countries you're talking about. China, Russia are being the biggest buyers right now. Yeah,
1: yeah. So so the reason why um like I said, uh, talking to these fur buyers, you know, why why do Western clade cats sell for so much money? Well it's it's a very large tom, right? Is what they're looking for. But the reason why the quality of Western clade cats is so high is because they're, they're pale in color on the back, uh, but also the belly is very white, very wide, and the spotting is well-defined. Very the, the clear. Black spots right. on the belly.
0: Yeah, they call that a clear belly. So, yeah, so, I mean, about the pricing, you know, the, the, those big toms you're talking about go $700 to $1,000 average is pretty much what's going on. Our top cat in Nevada last year. About twelve hundred dollars, right, for a single cat, single <clears throat> tom. Yeah, and it's it's that wide, white, clear belly. Those very, very defined spots, and because the big trend right now in furs is, you, they make a coat out of mink or sable, or some other you know fine fur, and then they trim the whole coat out, with with the bobcat belly, just right. just the belly. It's that white with the with the spots, and it just really you know. Stands out on that coat, really.
1: super soft, really beautiful. Yeah, uh, really,
0: yeah. you know the, the white just pops on the darker, the darker coat, and that's the and that's the big trend, and so that's what they're buying. They want the the fewest seams they can get, so the bigger the cat, the longer the stretch they can go without a seam, right? In that fur, yeah,
1: and and so the reason why they're they're considered a sighty species that you have to buy a special tag to affix to the hide before you can sell it. Um, is because of other. It's it's called what's known as the spotted cats, <laughs> right?
0: A look-alike species, yeah. right? So we've right. got
1: Canadian lynx that that were protected in a lot of areas, right? Um, and so that's it's the ability a, to differentiate right. a, a bobcat from a
0: Canadian lynx or some other spotted right. Pretty cat. much worldwide, any spotted cat shows up on that sighties list, right? They're not necessarily because they're a protected species, but they might look like a protected species, and so they just want to make sure that they're all accounted for to make sure they're not getting the wrong thing. Right.
1: Right. No, it's a it's kind of a an interesting system. Um but I think one of the things for for anyone who's interested in cats and and part of the reason why I wanted to start talking about this. So um I learned this a number of years ago. Like cuz we were all sitting in Arizona and we were looking at at average prices at the different sales. And Nevada's, man, like, the average price was so high. And it's like, how are our cats any different than what you can get in Nevada? Right. Well, it turns out you guys have a special stretch the, method. The when, Nevada put-up. The Nevada stretch is what we call
0: it. Right. They, they, in Nevada, they call it the Nevada put-up. And it's, and it's you know, the stretch isn't any more spectacular. But what they do is, is two things. One is the front legs when they stretch them out they pin them straight up towards the head yeah so those legs are going up and then at the bottom where the the white comes down on the, onto the back legs and you know when you skin out a bobcat you, you tube them so for people that don't, might not know like you cut from from the anus out to the to the bottom of the back legs yeah. so those back legs are split and so they take the white the inner part of the back legs and they pin them together in the on the belly side on this stretch. So the top legs are up. So what it does is when you look at the cat, it gives the illusion of that cat being, it, it adds 10 inches to the length <laughs> of the white part you see. Right. And so you see all that white and and the buyers are like, "Going, wow, look at all that white. That's what we want. And so that Nevada put up really increases the price on top of them already being large pale cats, as you mentioned. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, and there's there's actually... There's information out there in the world, and on the internet and whatnot, showing people how to do that Nevada put up. Anyone can do it. It's just the Nevada, the Nevada trappers have like really like nailed it down.
1: Yeah. Anyway. Well, and and that's the I, the reason why I want to share that little bit of information because if anyone's out there and they're they're putting up pelts and want to earn just a few more, but it doesn't matter what clade you're in, but if you're trying to add a few more dollars to what that buyer is willing to pay for your cats. Um, Nevada stretch 100%.
0: Right, right. You know, and I, I tell trappers when I'm dealing with them, young ones, you know, they're young guys that are just getting into it or or, or girls that are just getting in, you know, and they, and it, it's work, it's work to to put up a pelt nice, you know, but I ask them, I'm like, hey, if you're going to sell your car, do you you'd like, what do you do? And they're like, well, you wash it and you vacuum it out and you make it look nice. I'm like, why? Why do you do that? And they're like, well, because... It'll sell easier. I mean, that's exactly what you're doing with these pelts. You want to make it as presentable as you can to get top dollar for it. It's as simple as that. And, the, yeah. and one one of the coolest things in my career is I had a young kid come in with his daddy, seventeen, eighteen year old, late high school age, and he comes in and he's got this bobcat, and it's ratty. I mean, he hasn't he hasn't brushed it out, you know, so the hair's matted down in places didn't clean it up well and so it's greasy in places and that's everything that the fur buyers don't want yeah. right and he goes through and he and he sells it and he's leaving with his dad because the buyers are right there when we're this is at a ceiling event where we're putting the side tags in and the buyers are right there buying them as soon as i seal them there's buyers waiting and so he's leaving and i i grab him and his dad and i'm like do you mind if I ask what you got for that cat? And they told me and said, you know, the kid's like, I was a little disappointed. I was hoping for a little more. I said, well, come here, let me show you something. And I took him back to the buyers. I, I knew the buyers well. And I knew who had some of the top cats that had come in that day who had bought them. And I went to the buyer and said, hey, can I show him some of these pelts in your pile? And they're like, yeah, go ahead. So I pulled out some of these Nevada put up cats and I show them and I tell them this, you know, this logic. And I'm like, Walk around here, go back now and talk to the buyers and say, what are you looking for? What was about my pelts that didn't appeal to you? And this kid did it. And a couple months later I was doing another tagging event and this kid comes through with his dad again and he's got this beautiful put up. This popcat was beautiful. It was amazing. And he got $700 for that cat. And I'm like, were you happier with that? And he's like, going, oh yeah, that was it. You know, and that that's the sort of thing that, that makes me happy with my career. I'm like, well, if I can, if you get some, some kid like this coming through and they've got questions, they don't want to do, you know, line them out, tell them, teach them what they need to do. You know, use whatever resources you have to teach them and make it a better experience. And you've got them for life.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it, it, there's, that's essentially why I wanted to learn the art of, of trapping as well as skinning, flushing, you know, just to, to like really dig into it, right. you know, and and understand it from a, from a basic level. I think trapping is one of those parts of you know hunting the outdoors. I mean, what it, w- one of those skills that so few folks you know engage in, right? Um, that you know, it's it. There's a the lost art, and and you know, I mean some trappers you see, I mean, they're, they're old timers, you know, I mean, they, they, they're very much the old ways and, and, uh, may, may not be the most savory (laughs) characters, you know? (laughs) Um, but there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of good guys and there's a lot of wisdom in those guys, you know? Um, who, you know, if you, if you hang around with them long enough and just observe and listen and all that stuff, man, you will pick up so much stuff. I, you know, the first time I ran a, I ran an actual trap line when I, when I got, um, I, I was cage trapping. So I didn't have footholds or any of that stuff. And, and I had to run a, a cage line and, uh, I was learning how to trap from, from a guy. And, and he said, you know, during the season, he was kind of helping me out and he said, Hey, I'm going to let you run this line.
0: Another day is here and
1: you're ready for it. What to wear? Check breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Check planning for what's next and how to save for it. That's where bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That I usually run, but I usually run it later in the season. And so I think, I, I can't remember what I had time, maybe eight or nine traps or whatever. So I, I ran the... I, set up, set my traps in one day and <clears throat> was going to check them every day. Now in hindsight, I think what he was trying to teach me was something, um, you know, one of the, those Mr. Miyagi wisdom moments or something where it's, it's not readily apparent, but I, and I ran this line religiously and I didn't catch anything but stripes skunks not, not a dang thing, but striped skunks <laughs> the whole time. And I think what he wanted was for me to clear out the stripes skunks for him before he came <laughs> before in and he actually started in. really trapping.
0: That was nice of you. Yeah.
1: But so, um, but, uh, it, it actually was good practice for me. Now I, I grew up, my dad was a farm kid and all that stuff. And, and he showed me kind of the, the ways and wisdom of dealing with skunks on an up close and personal basis. So I didn't get sprayed, but you know, I was watching the whole signs, but being able to, to take, Skunks out of a trap, live skunks, and releasing them without getting sprayed, without you know things getting agitated and all that stuff. Um, it was it was a cool learning experience, even though like there was no you know fur or, or right, harvest right. involved in that. But,
0: so. but you learned some important skills there, didn't you?
1: Oh oh yeah, no. It's it was it, not that I had ever had to deal with that many skunks in a single day, every day for a couple of weeks. But um, you know, I would say I would say about half the traps had skunks in them um, every day that I went out for about two weeks uh, just, you know, going going to check these trap lines and stuff. <laughs> it's a lot of skunk. It, it is, but, you know, um, if you've never had, you know, I think skunks are, skunk scare people about as much as a snake does, you know, where you're like, there's a little bit of fear component involved in here. So,
0: so I, I recently did an interview with a reporter for the Reno Gazette Journal up in Reno, and she specifically called and wanted to talk about the sp- – the skunk spray, the smell of skunks. And I have always told people, you know, when you get the, the faint smell of skunk, I really like the odor. I like the smell. Now, if it's overpowering, then then no one likes it, you know. But, and this, this girl asked me, this reporter, she's like, she said, I kind of like it when it's faint, but when it's really strong, I don't like it. Why? What's the difference? And I'm like, well, it's like any other smell. It's like perfume, you know. If there's a little bit on, it's alluring. It's, it's it's a beautiful smell. But, you know, if you get behind some some old lady that's bathed herself in it because <laughs> cause her olfactory factory shot and she can't smell it anymore, you know, it makes your eyes burn. It, and no one wants it. doesn't smell good anymore. And it's the same concept. And she's like, I never really thought about that. So... I was just glad to find out I'm not the only person that likes the smell of skunk.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's uh, it's almost like chlorine gas. What you described, (laughs) Chanel number five, chlorine gas. You know? Oh my gosh! Yeah, I I would say, you know, we we get to deal with uh, a number of species in Arizona. I don't know how many. Do you have several skunk species in Nevada?
0: We have two. We have striped and spotted. Okay.
1: All right. Yes. Western spotted skunks. I have to say, by far, are like my favorite of the entire skunk crew. They're, they're pretty cool. <laughs> they're they're apparently their their scent, uh, the the chemical compound that makes up their scent is completely different than all the other skunks. Really? Um, at least that's my understanding. Because um, I don't know if you've ever noticed how it it does smell different. Yeah. Um, I was talking to actually a trapper who who deals in in skunk oil. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which, which, you know, for those who don't know, yes, you can actually sell skunk oil, um, you know, where they extract it out of the glands. And, right. And, and because there's actually a, a large market for it. Um, right. I think at the time when I was talking to him, he said he was selling his skunk oil for about, I think, $40 an ounce or something like that.
0: Yeah. It's, it's possible because it's, you know, there's, there's a number of things that you can extract from animals. Um, a lot of, a lot of people will buy. Coyote and fox you're in, yep. and one of the biggest sellers every year in Nevada at our sales are is beaver caster mm-hmm. castor gland, and it sells for about forty bucks a pound right now
1: yeah well, so this oil his buyers actually he had he had two kind of major buyers that bought from him one was actually um, natural gas industry because natural gas doesn't have an odor and right so apparently they were using skunk oil as part of that you know faint odor of you know, natural gas that you get out there. Um, But he, I guess he also sold to some kind of cosmetics company Um, because what they would do is they would take that oil and they would chemically change the compound somehow. So it removed the, the, the bad odor, but it was the sticking quality of that, Uh, you know, like, so, because skunk spray lasts forever. And so they were attaching the good smelling compounds to that skunk oil so it would stay and, and, you know, emit for a very long time instead of wearing out. So,
0: yeah. um, So one of the most interesting things about skunk spray to me, and a lot of people don't know this is that when it's, when it's in the gland or if they, I've had skunks that like curl up and will spray it on themselves. It's kind of like the last throes of death, you know, but it's a thick paste. I mean, it's about the consistency of toothpaste. Well. It's that thick, but it, when it becomes an aerosol when they spray it, and then it has the ability to to travel a great distance. It's, it's still an, it's an oil base like you're talking about, so it it sticks, and <laughs> and it holds that odor for a long time. But but yeah, but it aerosols as soon as they as soon as they spray that out, it goes from that thick that thick yellow paste. It's yellow. It's got a there's a sulfur compound to it. And so that sulfur makes it yellow, and and when they spray it, it just it aerosols and then,
1: yeah.
0: it hits the air and can go for a long ways. Yeah.
1: Well, I've right. seen the spray in the air of a of a skunk, right. you know, where it was kind of backlit, and you could see. I mean, it almost it kind of looked like urine, almost like in an aerosolized form. Yeah, but it it came out, and you're like going, "That's the cloud, the yellow cloud of death," you know, like
0: yeah. And unfortunately, I've been I've I've caught that before <laughs> on, more more times than I want to remember. Did
1: did you ever um, uh, what what were some of the tricks that you used in in terms of getting it off? Uh, well, did you ever do, do like the tomato juice bath or
0: you, you know I never did just because I never tomato juice was expensive to me when I <laughs> but you know, it doesn't work anyway yeah so so there's a there's a recipe out there you can find it on on the internet that's basically baking soda peroxide peroxide and and dawn dish soap you know so. I don't usually, you know, throw out their brand names, but Dawn has the best oil breakdown capacity of any, any dish soap I've ever found. And so whenever I'm dealing with wildlife stuff and I want to degrease them, you know, the commercials of washing the little baby ducks, which I've always wondered that they had to get that duck oily to wash it for the commercial. <laughs> no one's ever going, hey, wait a minute, they oiled up that, that little duckling. So, yeah, but, you know, that those three components wash it better than anything else. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I know that, you know, Dawn dish soap was used pretty heavily after the the Exxon Valdez spill. Right,
0: because of its oil cutting capacity. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, they washed most of those animals, most of those birds and and marine life with Dawn, which, which soap. is
0: which is why Dawn advertises that fact still to this day, but Yeah. But yeah, no, it's it's, you know, there's the but even that, you know, it, it's going to reduce it to a point where it's bearable, but you're not going to Rinse that shirt out with that stuff and run it through the washer and wear it the next day. I promise you, yeah, it's, it's going to be a process to get that clean. Most of the time, when I was when I was younger and I'd get sprayed, I'd just hang them outside for a few weeks. You know, and usually it was wintertime. We were getting storms coming through, and I just let the storms do the work, and eventually that stuff would dissipate and wash off. Was, my, my clothes hanging on the fence out back. So it was
1: like a nature wash.
0: <laughs> yeah, kind of the hillbilly method. <laughs>
1: Well, so we're here – I want to switch gears a little bit and get into the the migratory bird stuff because one of the things that I always find fascinating um, about the relationship um, that I get to see between Arizona and Nevada um, and, you know, two desert states, very little water in each, but very different waters because Nevada is a duck – killing machine when it comes to waterfowl season like the numbers that nevada puts up is pretty incredible you know by compare i mean you have less water
0: right than arizona does we, we are we are you know statistically the driest state in the nation We're drier than we don't get the same heat i mean it's hot don't get me wrong but we don't get the same level of heat but but what we also don't get is is the late summer monsoons yeah southern nevada um Las Vegas area catches those, but most of the rest of the state on a typical year we get one or two that blow up, but we don't get much summer precipitation. Right. it's just hot and dry, yeah,
1: but you like it's it's very strange the the waters in Nevada like you have very you have a lot of very hard water that is also alkaline right um and so is that the secret to to drawing ducks to Nevada, or is it, or is it simply a migration pattern that, that you're lucky enough to catch? All these birds come south out of Canada and Alaska and all, and they right. stop at the Great Salt Lake and they hang out there for a little bit till it gets too cold, and then they have to pour out somewhere. They do not go straight south to Arizona,
0: right? So <laughs> they pour
1: out to the side on Nevada.
0: So, so you're absolutely right. So they're all coming down, and we're, I mean. Of course, they're ducks. They can fly. They can go anywhere they want to, and they do. But we're talking about the main, the main flow of, of waterfowl. As they come down, they hit the Great Salt Lake. Then they, they kind of split. And we get we get a group that follows the Nevada-Utah border south towards Las Vegas and then into Arizona. But yeah. it's a much, much smaller group. Down the Colorado River. Right. They, they, they go south until they hit the river, and then they follow the river down. So, but the larger percentage of them, when they leave the Great Salt Lake, they come west across Nevada, right in the middle of our state, Lahontan Valley. Uh, the the major town there is Fallon, Nevada. It's about an hour east of Reno, and it's a large marsh. It's always been a large marsh ecosystem there. It's the we're in the Great Basin, so none of the water ever leaves Nevada, in the, the northern part of Nevada. It all runs out into the bottom of a basin and that's where it stays until it evaporates. So Lahontan Valley is the, the terminus of the Carson River. So the Carson River comes off of the Sierra Nevadas in California, flows down, makes its way out into Lahontan Valley to this large marsh. Stillwater National Wildlife Refuge is there. We have a Wildlife Management Area called Carson Lake there, that catches all this water. So that's halfway between Utah and the Sacramento Valley, Southern California, where these where these all this waterfalls headed. So it's just a natural stopping place, and that's the route that the majority of them take. It's straight across Nevada, here's a big marsh, so they stop. Yeah.
1: Well, let's, but but let's let's not overlook that. I I think for folks who who don't know or unaware, um. Like there's something really significant about the area of Reno and Fallon and all that when it comes to waterfowl migrations. Um Reno used to be a marsh in and of
0: itself. It's called the Reno area, the local name that people know it by is are the is the Truckee Meadows. Because the Truckee River, which also comes off this here in Nevadas, comes out of Lake Tahoe and a bunch of a bunch of other streams. All flow into the, the Reno Basin. This is the Truckee Meadows, and there was a giant wetland there. So yeah. There's still remnants of it, but at one time that was a spectacular marsh.
1: But you have an area just outside of Reno. What it's is it Lovelock, or um, I can't remember what it's called. Um, but there was a cave.
0: Yeah, right. So, so in Lahontan Valley, where Water National Wildlife Refuge is, that's the terminus of of the Carson River, then there's a mountain range on the north end, and on the north side of that mountain range is the Humboldt Sink, which is the terminus of the Humboldt River, which comes down clear across out of Idaho, clear across the northeast corner of Nevada and collects. There's a number of river systems that feed into it. The Humboldt for a Nevada River is a, a quite a large system, and it all ends right there on the north side of this same mountain range. So you've got, a, a, we call them a sink. Right. So you've got the Humboldt Sink on on the north side of this mountain range, the Carson Sink on the south side, and that range in the middle. So there was they found early, not early, 1950s, um, some people exploring the area found a cave that was used by Native Americans. And within this cave, they found decoys. They found... Native American archaeological remnants of decoys, canvas backs that were brilliantly made out of, out of tulies, cut right from the marsh. And they tied them up in the shape of a, of a duck, and they tied canvas back wings onto the side of it, and they painted the head red. Yeah. So they made a canvas back decoy and they found a whole bunch of them. They also found goose decoys, which were mostly heads. They'd actually skin the heads off of actual geese and stuff them and put them on a stick, and they could stick those on the ground. And they were hunting, and these are 4,000-year-old decoys.
1: Yeah, this, this, is, this, is, this is no small feat here. Like These are the oldest remnants of waterfowling in right the world,
0: right, right. are <laughs>
1: found in Nevada.
0: Four thousand year old decoys on these large marshes, and you know, it was it was a source of food even then. You know, it was a way of life for them, and they they found ways to hunt them. They found decoying ducks work, <laughs> so they did it.
1: <laughs> so, so even four thousand years ago, Nevada was still the place to be to go hunt waterfowl.
0: Absolutely, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's exactly what it says to me. But no, I mean, it's, it's pretty, I mean, that's, you know, it's, that's well before, you know, Columbus even showing up or, I mean, like, like these are, these are like 4,000 year old decoys. Right. In the North American, you know, I mean, these are early hunter tribe stuff, you know,
0: in the triest state in the nation, (laughs) the
1: use of decoys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in this area of Nevada, um, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable to me. You know that that of all the places you know I mean people today talk about you know how great you know central Valley California is or Stuttgart, Arkansas, or you know I mean like there's all these locations, but yet you know really kind of the 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 staple of you know right. the early american hunters was was <laughs> right
0: well, you know and something something else so I was recently i did a another podcast not too long ago um it's a pretty pretty broad spread national um podcast and and we were talking on that about about you know there's a lot of people saying well duck hunting so expensive get into it there's so much gear involved you know and i'm like you don't have to have the best quality name brand you know the very best that's that's something that we like to get into in, in our modern modern world is i gotta have the name brand camo the most recent thing and i've got to have the most the best decoys that you can buy well these native americans proved four thousand years ago you don't you know you can make anything work (laughs) i have hunted swan in nevada with white trash bags there's a decoy
1: the the kitchen trash bags you were telling me that
0: you you blow them up you string them off you weight them down and swans will come in now they're unlikely to land in them but you can draw them down close enough for a shot yeah
1: now, surprisingly, I, uh, switching gears into that speaking of, speaking of swans, I, I recorded a podcast about a year ago uh, with some of my game warden buddies who I took up to Nevada to, to hunt swans for the first time. Um, which down there at Stillwater Marsh, it was it was pretty right. awesome. Um, we were we were a little off in our timing. We ended up we did get at least one bird uh, out of the group. And, and the year before that, I went up there and man, I it was it was like. I, I was right on the money, you know, showing right. up and, and well
0: it was a better water year that, that first year too. <laughs>
1: Probably, yeah. But um uh you recently went through some changes uh to swan hunting in Nevada. Um you wanna talk about, you know, what, what kind of just what went what happened in, in Nevada this year for
0: right. swans? So it really and and it's it's not new. We're we we're reinstituting something we used to do so f- for many many years nevada's swan permit allocation process was a draw and um we have 650 swan permits in in nevada that's that's allowed by through the, through the framework and the federal government and so we would put those up for sale and we had a vendor that was that was kind of an old school operation we'd had them for for 20 plus years so when when we started with them they were frontline technology they were great but they never really kept up with technology and after 20 years it's amazing how far you can lag behind in technology so we would do a draw and once the draw was over then then we would his operation would sell those over his counter. so they were available monday through friday eight to five only at, at his place of business which made them pretty hard to get to, especially if you were coming from out of state. Huh. You had to plan to be there during business hours, which <laughs> is a little hard. So a few years ago, we we changed vendors, and that process suddenly went from this antiquated system to you could just go on our web page, go to our license page, buy a, buy a Swan permit. As long as we had them available, till so six fifty, we were sold. So we went twenty years before this new system, and in 20 years, we sold out all 650 permits in a year twice. So then we go to this new system where you can just go on the internet and buy them. Well, all of a sudden, that made them super available, you know, which makes a big difference to to someone trying to purchase these things, right? Right. So, So we, suddenly we started selling out every year, not surprisingly, and we sold out faster and faster every year. Until we got to a place last year where we sold out all of our permits in two and a half days from the day they went on sale. So, I realized that I needed to bring it back to a draw system. So, this year, for the first time in five years, we're back to a draw. So, in Nevada for a swan permit, you got to apply, get into the draw. Um, You're allowed... Nevada is the only state of... There's 11 swan hunting states. We're the only state where you're allowed two permits. Right. So... The last the last few years not only could you go online and buy one, you could buy two. The same not in the same transaction, you could buy one at a time, but you could buy one and immediately buy the second one. Wow. So with the permit with the draw system you can put in for one. It gives people a little more fair chance of getting at least one permit. And then if there's leftovers it'll go back to the online sales and people can buy a second one or or pick one a first one up if they want. Right. If they're still available.
1: Yeah. Now, we were, we were talking a little bit about that today, about, you know, it, it, swan hunting is something that I think most waterfowlers either, you know, they they see or, you know, might be peripherally familiar with if, you know, if it's out there, it's one of the the North American 44s, they're calling it or whatever, you know, to, to collect right. them all But right. um, it, it is a, it's a pretty cherished, I mean, like, it, like you were saying, I mean, there's very few states that actually even offer that opportunity. It's a unique opportunity. Right. For states that have it. Um, so let's see we've got nevada utah idaho montana north and south dakota uh virginia north carolina and now delaware just finished their their experimental season right well am i missing one or
0: hell you passed you passed me after you left the western states (laughs) i I know there's 11 jonathan and i can't name them all outside of the 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 pacific flyway states
1: yeah, I think I think that's I think that's all all of them. I can't remember if there's there's one more else hanging out there, but um, yeah, I mean it's very few states. Like you'd have to travel to these states in order to, to be able to hunt swans, right tundra swans, um, and and that of course you know some states certainly more rigorous um, because there's a there's a possible chance we want you know folks to avoid shooting trumpeter swans. Right, right. What we're hunting is is. Tundra swans.
0: Right. Well, that's the, the primary focus. It's legal to shoot either. So all of the swan hunting states have a, it, specifically written this way, it's a swan hunt. Therefore, there's no, there's no penalty if someone shoots a trumpeter. But we try to discourage that because we're trying to protect certain populations, specifically in our flyway, the Rocky Mountain breeding segment. So within the U.S. breeding segment, within the the Rocky Mountain states, the the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem, in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming, that's that's where our U.S. breeders are. Yeah, but so, then we've
1: got some some trumpeters that come out of
0: right. There's there's a Canada number. And, yeah, I recently had a guy contact me by email from out of state, and he's like, from the research I can see, there's like sixty thousand trumpeters continentally. That's more than than we had when we started hunting tundra swans. So why the restrictions? And and that's why that we're protecting that specific breeding segment. Yeah. And continentally there are roughly sixty thousand, but those are spread over four flyways. So it's not quite as simple as, as you know, there being one pop one big giant population. Yeah. It's a free for all. Yeah, and
1: we're working pretty hard on the Rocky Mountain breeding segment to, to bolster them at this point because right. they're not in the same shape as like some of the Canadian segments. and
0: Right, right. And four years ago, there's there's a number of the Pacific Flyway, because of that U.S. breeding segment, um, we have more restrictions than a lot of the other hunting states, swan hunting states. and But about four years ago, the population has risen to a point that a lot of those restrictions... Are starting to to come off, right? And so we made a bunch of changes within the flyway through this process that we're working on this week, and we made those changes and made it a little easier. We we doubled Utah and Nevada are the two states that have quotas for trumpeters. We reset quota the hunts ends, and we doubled the quotas for those states. Yeah. So, and essentially, you know what. <laughs> That has impacts too, you know. I, sometimes people don't understand the sociological aspect of wildlife management. But um, Utah, that gets they get the largest group of those those birds we were talking about that come into the Salt Lake marshes yeah. and hang out. They get tens of thousands of of swans that come in there, both trumpeter and tundra, and so they have the largest for the Pacific Flyway. They have the largest allocation of permits, but. You know, people people saw an opportunity. Oh, they've they've doubled the restriction. I want to get my, you know, fill out my what you, top forty. Is that what you called that or the, <laughs> the species? You know, they want they want to check all those boxes. Right. So they go, oh, if if I take one, it's not going to change. It's not going to hurt anything. It Won't shut the hunt down because it's just one, and and they have an allocation of twenty. A quota of twenty trumpeters in Utah, but. Twenty guys think that every year. And for the last three years, Utah's hunt has closed early. Right. But in Nevada we've we've never closed. Yeah. So we came we, we got to the final weekend one year. Where our, our quota was five, it's now ten with with the lightened restrictions, but when it was five, we, we hit five the final weekend. So it didn't shut anything down because it was the final weekend. It got checked in the Monday after the hunt ended. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, it's, it's kind of a, I, I, th- I think from a wildlife management perspective, I mean, we can get a little frustrated because, you know, I, hunters are always kind of looking for the loopholes and so, <laughs> right, know, right. What <laughs> is, what's legal, what's not. And so, you know, well, yes, yeah, you can shoot a trumpeter swan and, you know, add it to your collection or whatever, but, the consequences of that, I mean, that's why we're putting restrictions on it is because, you know, right. like we don't want this resource over harvested. We, we're we we're actually we're hunting tundra swans, but because they're mixed sometimes, right. you know, some accidents, so we don't wanna act we don't wanna like like ticket you unnecessarily for right. taking the wrong bird, you know. Um
0: now, if if the trumpeters were were not allowable this it technically technically becomes a federal offense to shoot one. Yeah. So we don't, no one wants that. So, so they, you know, lift that restriction and just make it a swan hunt, but we're still trying to protect certain birds. So yeah. you've got to have those restrictions in place and you're right. Hunters are always looking for that loophole. I don't know if you get this in Arizona. Every time we go, we start going into a dry cycle because we, we cycle through it. We'll get really wet years and then we get really dry years. I'm sure that's the same for you guys, but every time we start going into a dry cycle, it's amazing the number of calls that start coming into me a month or so out from the from the waterfowl hunt on guys going, Hey, there's I found some water over here. Is it legal for me to hunt there? Or do you know of some water somewhere that I can hunt? And I get some of the craziest questions about, you know, places where where there's a pond somewhere, you know, that might be on the edge of town. Right. Can I hunt there? Is it legal for me to hunt there? And I'm like, Well, <laughs> No, and it's not all from Department of Wildlife restrictions. You know, a lot of times people don't understand that, that cities and counties put in restrictions that can also stop you from hunting in an area that, as far as the Department of Wildlife is concerned, we don't care, but the county or the city does. Right. So there's a lot more restrictions out there than, than just what we're imposing. Yeah. So
1: the, 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 the running joke in Arizona... um in the middle of of phoenix well kind of mid-south anyway outside of tempe uh where asu's at there's a there's a tempe decided to create tempe town lake and it's got these big rubber inflatable dams that are on the salt river the salt doesn't flow anymore right but you know they get water releases in there and, and they hold the water there you know it's kind of a big water feature and stuff and and all that but uh, so the the joke you know amongst a lot of the waterfowl hunters um the the hardcore guys have been around for a long time you know you take pictures of ducks but you don't show the background right because you don't want anyone to know where you've been hunting right right and so when someone asks That's it's, it's always at. tempe town lake <laughs> so i've literally had i've had some hunters who don't know that they're not in on the joke call, call me wondering when i'm going to open tempe town lake for when, when does that open does that special season on tempe town lake and everything right so, yeah i gotta tell them yeah no don't don't ever listen to anyone says you're hunting tempe town lake or something <laughs> Yeah, right in the right in the middle of Phoenix, this giant lake. Yeah, we're just gonna yeah. gonna let you do some now. Drive by it in the wintertime, boy, and there are, there's, there's some, are some there's waterfowl some, out there. I mean, right. for sure. I mean, I've I've kind of glanced over off the bridge, looking at it, going, "Man, I'd really, you know, I'd set up in those tuilis right over there."
0: <laughs> I've had, I've had people call before and ask on the on the outskirts of Reno, there's some what I like to call the square ponds. Yeah, <laughs> so. You know, um, doing doing a little bit of water treatment work in, in those square ponds that have had guys ask if that if that's huntable, and you go up you go up by them and and they'll be loaded with ducks, just loaded with ducks. Wow. so but now it's I'm you know.
1: I'm not sure you'd want to eat the ducks that are eating out of those ponds. Just just maybe. Well,
0: you know. You're not shooting them off those, but you know they're flying in from there to where you're hunting, Jonathan. So oh, yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. getting you're getting them anyway. Well,
1: you, I mean, you you know I'm such a big fan of shovelers. so I mean that's, <laughs> that's that's the common culprit right there. I'm I'm a big shoveler shooter, so the Hollywood mallard has to has to has to be taken at all costs. So yeah, much I'd prefer You know, I mean, they say shoot green heads. The damn thing has a green head. I mean, <laughs>
0: you you're not wrong there. It's, no man, if you're happy with them, by all means. Yeah. I, you know,
1: I I really haven't had a bachelor. I mean, as as much people trash talk them, I and and I I get it. They're not the best tasting duck overall, but I've never had one that's like so far gone that it wasn't edible,
0: you, you know. You, if you use enough sauce, you can eat anything. <laughs> <laughs> can eat
1: some boot leather, shoe leather something. Um so yeah, you yeah. There's, there's, I'm just always impressed, like I said, by, by the, it's, it's tough for me to be in Arizona and saying, you know, like, like you get a lot of bird shot in Nevada. Um, I think New Mexico is a sleeper state when it comes to the waterfowl community. Like, like there's some great waterfowling in New Mexico. You know, it pains me to say that. Like, I like shooting ducks in Arizona, but that's, you know, what's close and, and home. But I mean, visiting some of these other states and seeing what's going on out there. Man, like there is, there is just some cool opportunities um, out there that I, I think are just you know completely unknown. I mean, I don't know that there's. I know that the the guys who are in the know for waterfowl hunting know about Nevada, but I don't know that that kind of the average Joe duck hunter, you know, who's knows who's, about who, that, yeah, knows about that. You know, Nevada is a, a great opportunity.
0: Yeah, you know what's we get we get a fair number of hunters coming out of California, yeah. which, which shocks people because california's where where they're all headed for the winter yeah. I mean they're just there's you can't throw a rock without hitting a duck or a goose in California in the wintertime <laughs> if you're in the right in the right areas of the Sacramento valley that's the part i'm I see the most but you know and but there's two things about hunting Nevada. one is that there's more resources there than people realize yeah. both both on a normal year water hunting you know open water to hunt on. And two is the number of ducks that are there. But the thing about it and what makes it easier than that I've heard from California hunters is in California there's so many ducks and there's so many places that you're not really sure where to focus your efforts. It's pretty clear cut in Nevada because <laughs> <laughs> there's not that many places where you can go hunt ducks. So it's pretty yeah. pretty easy to, to pick out the spot you're going to If you focus. find water, <laughs> like, likely that's, that's... That's the place to set up. That's the place to be, so...
1: Well... So prior to coming up here, um, about a week or two ago, um, I was, I was my desk after the whole COVID symptomology, you know, two years of basically treating it like, you know, a hoarding trash can, <laughs> my <laughs> cubicle. Um, I was like, it's time to clean this stuff up. I gotta, I gotta get rid of stuff and get stuff organized, restrained out again. And so, cause it, I mean, I've just stopped in the office like once or twice a week and it was like most of the time just dropping stuff off and not putting it away and, you know, getting things filed and right. whatever Pe- else.
0: I hear people do that sort of thing. I, I've, I've never tried it, but I, I hear that that people try that from time but to time.
1: But my, my, yeah, I, I sh- it probably should have been on an episode of hoarders. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if, if there was a, an office hoarders, yeah, I, that was my desk. I had just boxes of stuff and who knows, but I was cleaning it out and, um, I forgot I had this. So I, I was going through some of my, my, my bookshelf, um, and, uh, trying to reorganize and, and put stuff back where it goes and and so i actually ran across um i have the complete set by the way um but i have the complete set of the uh exotic game introduction uh team products from the western association of fish and Wildlife agencies back in the 40s oh okay yeah, <laughs> like I literally have every single one of the the meeting minutes, uh, you know, big thick documents. Wow, um, that came out. You I, really are a hoarder. <laughs> well, well, the thing of it is, 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 uh, years ago when 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 uh, we were moving our office, they built us a brand new office and they wanted to move out of the old one and all that, and so I was low man on the totem. That was like right when I started with the department, you know, and so I was a low man on the totem pole. So it was my job to go clean out all the 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 bin and the warehouse and right. like there's just piles and piles of stuff. So I got to dig through stuff and, uh, you know, they were looking for things, um, that, uh, that they wanted to send to the archives. And, uh, I was like, there's no, like, this is too valuable. This is like super duper information. So that's how it's stuff like, that's, that's like the the whole collection. But I, 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 it was cool to see cause I, I was pulling them out and just kind of flipping through and all that stuff. I mean, it's, it, here's a, the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, for those who don't know, is basically the collective of the Western states um, working on the directors, the the agencies and all that stuff. They like they meet annually, um, you know, to 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 work on issues that jointly kind of affect us all and, and to work towards conservation management at a at a collective state. Um, but back in these days, uh, they had formed a team. Uh, from all the states, you know, having a biologist from all the states. And it was about introducing exotic species into uh, the Western states. And so this is like back in the days when right. these Mongolian chuckers and white wing pheasants and
0: they brought in everything <laughs> they could get their hands on.
1: Well, and uh, so, I mean, it's very interesting reading. Um, to go back and, and listen to the discussions and, and kind of the organization and stuff like that because uh, um, uh, I think Oregon was one of the first states to get um, chuckers, um, and they were from Mongolia. Right. Um, they were, there yeah. was Mongolian chuckers and stuff, and they hit the ground in Oregon and just took off like wildfire. Population just, I mean, they loved Oregon for whatever reason that was. And so the other states were like, Hey, that, that worked out pretty good. And so, you know, can you share some with me? So they they were taking chuckers from Oregon and trying to start populations in new states. But, um, a few years into that whole process, all of a sudden the population for inexplicably crashes, right. And goes like, whatever. Arizona was the next state, um, to receive Oregon chuckers. I think Nevada had gotten some and and uh, I think Idaho had gotten some, and, and Arizona was on the list next to get Oregon chuckers. But then the population went to hell in a handbasket for some reason. Um, so anyway, in the absence of of not apparently there was some rich guy in Arizona, um, and I don't know who he was, but he was friends with some sheik in Iran, and somehow worked out this deal. And so Arizona sent a couple of their guys in a plane over to Iran. And they got their chuckers from Iran instead of Mongolia, so it's a little different strain of chuckers. Okay. Um, put it in. But um, I was reading through a lot of his old notes, and Nevada's name in, in these documents, like Nevada had, must have had the most active exotic species biologist of the entire it, West.
0: It was absolutely, <laughs> absolutely insane what this guy did. His name was Glenn Christensen, and he made two, at least two trips that I'm aware of there could have been more but at least two to afghanistan to get every exotic he could get his hands on and they brought back they brought back more chucker cuz they wanted new strains they brought back a couple of different species of francolins um one of the best stories out of that whole thing that i that i recall is they brought back sand grouse so probably few people know what a sand grouse is but it's not really A true grouse species, it's more like a dove species, and because it's a dove species, of sorts, they migrate. So they brought back all these sand grouse, and the first release they did, they turned them loose. You know, and you go back to to see what happens the next year. See if you can find any of these things. If you get any hundreds that report them, nothing. They're just gone. Well, that that next fall they get a call from this guy and he says, hey, I was down hunting in Mexico and I shot this bird I've never seen before and it has a Nevada Department of Wildlife band on its leg. What is this thing? (laughs) And the biologist actually sat down and they they figured out where they'd come from in Afghanistan and and measured it. And it was about the same distance, their migration distance from that country to where it was shot in Mexico. (laughs) But that was the only one that was ever reported harvested but there was another bird that was a huge success, and it's the Himalayan snow partridge. Yeah,
1: or so, Himalayan snowcock.
0: Himalayan snowcock. They're called by both names. And it is a distant relative of Chucker. So um, they brought these in for years and years. Like most states, we had a propagation program. So we had a, had a game farm. And we raised all kinds of different birds. Different types of quail, these francolins, you know, all kinds of things. Kind of everything other than the chucker, that there was a lot of releases of, the only thing that made it was these Himalayan snowcocks. And they took them up, they put them on a lot of mountain ranges, but where they, where they found their home, their place, is over in the northeast corner of the state in Elko County. There's two mountain ranges, the Ruby Mountains and the East Humboldt Range. And they're side by side. They're both unbelievably tall mountain ranges they're they're um high elevation and it's like rocky cold winters deep snow it's it's crazy up there and these himalayan snow partridges snowcocks just to cold yeah. and they haven't done releases in 40 50 years and they're still up there and you can still hunt them it's the only place in, outside of the of the Himalayas where you can hunt <laughs> Himalayan snow partridges, and you know they're they're a large, a very large bird. They're the size of a sage grouse, if you know what that is. The size of a chicken, pretty much. They're a big, big bird. Um, it's free to hunt them in Nevada. You have to you have to get a permit online to go up and hunt them. And we do surveys for them annually just to make sure we're still seeing numbers. Um, we we can't get a complete count on them just because they're pretty sparsely distributed across those mountain ranges. But we average about um, between 10 and 20 harvested a year is all. But the reason why is you got to go to the top of these <laughs> crazy tall mountains. So I lived in that country for a few years, and I, I used to go up and try. And I'd start about halfway up the mountain where I'd start my hunt. And I loved to hunt this one particular canyon, the bottom third of the canyon, we had rough grouse. On the middle third of the canyon we had blue grouse. On the top third we had these Himalayan snowcocks. And you'd be up in that country hunting and, and you'd walk down a trail and you look and there's mountain goat tracks. You're up <laughs> in the mountain goat country, you know, and places you're looking down on mountain goats to hunt these things. And you know, I always found sign but they're but they're kind of tough to find and they they get into the the hardest places, and they have this real habit of when you do spook them up, they fly out over these deep canyons. So if you shoot one, it's going to drop 1,200 feet to the bottom of the canyon <laughs> in, in, a, in a, you know, craggy cliff-lined canyon, and there's no way you're going down to get them. So, of course, you can't pull the trigger on those, or you shouldn't pull the trigger on those, but but it's, it is, you know, it's one of the top challenges of upland game hunting in in america and we get people that travel there's been there's been some a couple of of uh hunting shows that have come out with the crew and actually hunted them and had success yeah. and guys do it i know people that have shot multiple but that's rare yeah
1: now have you eaten one before
0: i have not i've I'm never have found success i've never eaten one i hear they're good
1: i'm kind of a fan of partridges i mean that's the whole thing so there's the hungarian partridge you know, you got red leg partridges, gray leg partridges, and you got chuckers. right? You know, um, but yeah, I've never eaten a Himalayan snowcock. I would, I would assume probably tastes similar, but I don't know. I mean, like it, it's when you start thinking about what food is available, you know, to to a bird that high up in <laughs> the the craggy mountains right. of, of northeast Nevada. Like, I mean, just what are they eating up there?
0: You know, they, they um. A lot of seed heads, you know, I mean, yeah. summertime, like what any bird would eat, you know, there's some, they eat some insects, they eat seed heads. In the wintertime, what they tend to do, because there's deep, deep snow up on those mountains, and they get into those, those. there's, a, on a lot of times in that high country, on the downhill side of rocks, when it snows, there's a void there. Right. And there's grasses and stuff that stick out, so they can just wedge themselves between a rock and a snow bank and find, you know, cover there. And there's, you know, grass is sticking out and they eat those seed heads to to survive on it and just wait it out, wait for <laughs> wait for the snow to melt.
1: Yeah, I I I've known a, a number of guys who like that's their thing is they want to take all of, you know, America's upland game birds, you know. Right. And so Arizona's obviously a popular stop, you know, just because of the quail and and things like that, but uh, yeah, Himalayan snowcock is is on their list, but you know, as I was talking about earlier in the show, I mean, trying to hike up the, we've been looking at these hills here, looking at you know what <laughs> right. it, what it takes just to get tarmigan. <laughs> I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, getting all. Do you have helicopters to the top? I mean, that can drop us off, or
0: <laughs> there's not. I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm afraid there's not. You know, there's there's uh, in the Rubies, there's a couple of roads that get up yeah, pretty close to the high country. You have a start, yeah, but where those roads go, there's not, it's not really, you know, the best places. It's a lot of habitat. Yeah, a lot of that, that mountain range is is glacial carved. Yeah. And you get these cirques up in there, at the top of those, and that's where they really like to hang out. You get the bottom of those cirques, you know, they usually retain some water. So you get like a small pond up there for a water source. And that's where they tend to hang out. And unfortunately, there's no roads and not really even. Trails, other than what the mountain goats have made to get into a lot of those
1: yeah well i mean i've, I've seen a lot of guys particularly with chucker i mean obviously um it takes a, a a special kind of dog uh in person just to hunt chucker anyway because you know they've always said you know you, the first time you hunt them for fun second time's for revenge for, right <laughs> and sometimes even when you shoot those birds that go sailing out and then and then you shoot and they drop very far down even the dog turns around, and looks at you and goes yeah. i'm not getting it no you get it, you <laughs> no know?
0: yeah i'm not going yeah i don't you know, I know personally of, of two people that I know that have harvested the snowcocks. I don't believe either one of them hunted with a dog. Yeah, just because that's it's you're you're doing some some rock scaling. I'm not gonna call it skiff, cliff climbing because it's not it's not it's just boulder rubble that you're crawling <laughs> over. <laughs> you know, and. And it's it's tough going, and I think it'd be tough to get a dog through there. I'm not saying you couldn't, but I'm just saying it would be really tough to have a dog in that country. I think you'd end up carrying it a lot of the way to get it over some of the, the boulder rubble you have to crawl through. Yeah.
1: Well, but, you know, I mean, how many people can say their dog has retrieved a Himalayan snowcock? I mean, that's... Almost none. <laughs> that's a that's quite a feat for, you know... If you wanted to get your dog an award, you know, that picture of, of a dog with a Himalayan snowcock in its <laughs> that, mouth on that, top that of it. That a might a be mouth, the
0: one that get you that award. <laughs>
1: that might be it. You have any other strange, interesting species there in, in Nevada that, you know, are kind of unique or... Uh,
0: you know... Most of the other you know, upland stuff that they brought in years ago just didn't make it. Didn't make it. There was just it was just too much of a stretch. You know, just even with propagation programs and stuff. And some of them don't. A lot of species don't do well on propagation. Yeah. You know, some do, and so there was you know failures for different reasons. There's actually the department has an old 1960s video, a movie they made about about their process of going over to Afghanistan and the video of trucks going up the mountains of afghanistan you know it it looks eerily similar to nevada in fact uh, a lot of times the military comes into nevada when we were you know doing doing uh, battles in in afghanistan and they'd come and train for special missions in nevada because of the similarities yeah
1: well and i i had a lot of friends from the service who um when they went into afghanistan um you know they they wanted me to send them pictures of of cool animals and stuff i was hunting here <laughs> stuff and, <laughs> and uh uh deer and whatnot just just for something you know for anything and a lot of them told me they said man that just like i mean aside from the saguaros man it looks like afghanistan here too right just that, yeah. how rugged and rough yeah the terrain is you know
0: Yeah. nevada has so there's no there's there's no uh, mountain ranges where you get up on top of it you know the, the part of the country i grew up in you you get the top of a mountain and look off the backside, and all you could see was just peak after peak after peak of you know of forested mountains and in Nevada, every mountain range on the other side is is a valley, but there's three hundred and nineteen mountain ranges like that in Nevada, so it's very mountainous you know and, and each one's different from the last they're all they all run in a north south orientation, and then it's driving across Nevada if you ever have it's like you start feeling deja vu because you drive across the big valley and then you go up over a mountain pass and then you drive across the big dry valley, you go yeah. over a mountain pass and another big dry valley and another <laughs> mountain pass and it's just repetitive over and over and over again. Yeah.
1: Well, I'll tell you, we, we took some back route um, when I went to Stillwater to, to go hunt swans and it's, it's like literally there's a sign, the loneliest road in America. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's right. US fifty across across Nevada, the loneliest road in America.
1: I I wanna tell like this is no lie. Like (laughs) it earned that title for me for sure because we were out there and it was just no one. Yeah. No one and nothing. And and by the way, I mean I was like I was just praying the car was gonna hold up. Because I'm like, even if you break down out here, I'd look down at my phone every once in a while just to see if there was any cell phone service either because there's some spots that don't have it.
0: Right, there's a lot of spots that don't have it. (laughs) Yeah,
1: like there is no one coming to save, like no one's going to drive by and help you, to help save you (laughs) if you go down this road. I mean, it it is just desolate.
0: I would like to say that that's unique. That road's unique to Nevada, but it is not. There's more than one road where... You can spend a lot of time out there and never pass another car it's, so the state has has uh, right around three point three million people in it, yeah, and there's there's two million ish in the in the Las Vegas area, and there's half a million in the Reno area. That means the whole rest of the state, the seventh largest state in the nation, the whole rest of the state has the other seven hundred thousand people. Very sparsely,
1: yeah. Well, because that's the other thing we're out there driving, and then you'd look over, and way off in the distance, with nothing else around, <laughs> is somebody's home.
0: There's a ranch house out there, I'm yeah. Like what? Well,
1: I mean, it wasn't like a ranch house, I mean, this was just like, <laughs> well, it almost looked like squatters had set up. You well, know, like
0: that's that, that was one of our ranch houses, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, that's what you call a ranch house. It's kind of like when I was driving through the, the swamps in Louisiana. Um, we were driving some backroads in the swamps of Louisiana, driving along, and you know there's all that Spanish moss just everywhere. And we're driving, and it, they're literally we're on this road. I don't even know what road we were on, but there was swamp on either side. I mean, it was just straight up swamp, water. You know these these big you know like mangrove type trees and stuff, and out in the middle of the swamp. There'd be a brand new Ford pickup truck. It was blue. I mean, it stood out like against the green and brown background. I'm like, I'm like, what is that? And if you looked long enough and hard enough, you'd realize it was parked in front of a house.
0: House, there's, but the there's, house there's, was
1: completely <laughs> covered in moss. You I've, know?
0: I've seen those houses in the south. There's a house out in the middle of the swamp, and there's a wooden walkway that goes from the road all the way across the swamp to the house. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, it, but yeah,
1: Nevada was just like it's like I am literally nowhere. I, I don't see anything, and then there looks like maybe some kind of off the grid compound, you know? <laughs> Like these people did not want the government or anyone showing up at their door without a long view on them. There's
0: there's a lot of people that live in Nevada for for that that solitude. For they they want to be alone and left alone. Um, Nevada is it's roughly eighty six percent federal land. Yeah. So it's one of the largest proportional states wise of federal land in the u.s if not if not the highest level of federal land but yeah out in the middle of that there's there's pieces of property that are owned and people that live in places that's like well, what are you what are you doing out here what <laughs> what brings you to this spot and they've got to drive hours to get get to get supplies in town you know right so you don't you don't run to town on a on whim from, yeah. from those places
1: well, I mean, I often think about that, like, you know, some of the, the, like the old historic towns, um, uh, Carson city being one of those, or, you know, like tombstone, Arizona. Like I, I think about, you know, kind of around the time when these things are founded, like imagine that there's no houses or nothing here, you know, right now, and you're cruising across the desert now, granted I'm on a paved road, but like, you know, I'm just driving and I'm looking around at the scenery and the topography and everything. I'm like what made someone decide that here's a good place to start up town? Was it simply a wagon broke down and there was just nowhere else to go? So we're just going to build our house here or I've asked
0: myself that question many times. It's like who looked at that spot and went there? That's where I want to live. Right. <laughs> Cause it's the last place on earth. I look at and go, that's a good spot. Let's, let's stay there. But maybe, maybe it was a broken wagon. wheel that brought them yeah. there.
1: But I will say I, I was rather impressed. We, um, we had a meeting um, not that long ago. I can't remember what, I can't remember what it was for, um, but uh, uh, I got a chance to drive up um, that that spine of, along California's, you know, the, the border of California, right below Tahoe and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. We were coming up from the south, and you you drive across an area that's that's really, I, I guess it only gets like five inches of rain a year in this in this stretch that we were on. You know, it's it's just incredibly. Like, you can't believe anything lives out there, you know, first of all. I mean, it's just, you know, lax, it's just void of, like, vegetation or <laughs> anything. But then all of a sudden you get up onto that spine, um, you know, of, of the Nevada-California border as you're going up. And just how wet it was, The like, the closer we were getting, you know, as we got up, you know, through Minden and on up towards Reno. and Right, right. Um, just surprisingly how wet, you know, that it, that it is coming off that kind of Tahoe right sierra nevada stuff
0: so the great basin which is largely the entire like north northern two-thirds of the state is that great basin i was talking about earlier right and it sits in a rain shadow from from the sierra nevadas which where tahoe is that spine you're talking about that's the sierra nevadas and it that just stops all all of the the rain that's coming in off the the oceans from the west they hit that sierra nevada and it's so tall the storms just can't pass over, so they just hang up. They dump all their snow in the Sierra Nevadas. Hence, situation like the Donner Party getting caught in 23 feet of snow. Because right. <laughs> it just dumps on them. But it creates that rain shadow, and there's nothing left to dump that doesn't come into Nevada. But but what you get with those 319 mountain ranges, each one sort of creates its own microclimate. And it's it's the craziest thing because... Those valley bottoms, you know, you talked earlier about the alkali flats across Nevada and, you know, it grows almost nothing out there. A little bit of greasewood and some of those alkali flats and the bottoms and, you know, pickleweed and a few a few things that just live a short existence of just, you know, a week in the spring when a little bit of <laughs> rainwater hits them and they can grow. But the tops of those mountains all across Nevada, you hit these microclimates and there's there's a lot of them are sagebrush and um pinyon juniper forest. But the farther north you get you start getting into huge aspen stands and pine trees and you know, just in small spots on the top of these mountain ranges where there's just enough moisture at the top because it's created this this microclimate to grow those things. And there's some beautiful places and quite lush in Nevada. But most people are down in the valley bottoms <laughs> driving across that that barren wasteland, and and don't really realize how spectacular some of those mountain ranges are.
1: But at the same time, don't don't you also have some of those bristlecone pines?
0: Yeah, Um yeah.
1: way up in in elevation on top of those mountains, That's, like the oldest living things on
0: Earth. Yeah, our our state tree in Nevada is the bristlecone pine, and yeah, over there, you know, towards either side, and and some of that country, like we were talking about with the snowcocks and the rubies, and some of the mountain ranges just to the south of it, there's a lot of bristlecone pine. Right.
1: Way up at high elevations. High elevations,
0: you know. gnarly. They're the coolest trees to come across. You know, gnarly. You know that thing's been there for, for eight hundred plus years, <laughs> and it's <laughs> twisted and gnarly because it's a hard life up there. And the winds blow, and the snow pushes them around, and they get twisted. And you know, it it puts to shame any any bonsai you've ever seen. <laughs> 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 Only on a much larger Na- natural scale. Natural <laughs> bonsai is it right there. Yeah. Right.
1: Well, that's, it's just, yeah, trying, trying to understand Nevada is, you know, biologically is, is just, it's just such an interesting state with some, uh, it's, it's harsh. I mean, that's, that's the thing I think, you know, there's a misconception about Arizona, you know, being the, you know, it's all, you know, rattlesnakes and sand dunes and deserts and cactus stuff. But, you know, what they don't understand is that of the four deserts which all converge in Arizona, which is one of the coolest features ever that we have. But the Sonoran Desert, our primary desert is the most lush desert of the four in North America. I mean, some of the the wettest. Yeah. Some of the uh, things
0: you've shown me in Arizona, I didn't expect in a million years when I saw them. Yeah. Just, I mean, I don't remember the name of the area. You took me down there south of, south of when we were there for meetings. Yeah. And it was, you get me up on top of this mountain and there's, there's, it's a grassland up there, yeah. And there's cottonwood trees growing in the drainages, and I'm like, "Where are we? This isn't what Arizona's supposed to look <laughs> like, you know." So we all have our preconceived notions, and and until you get out and explore a state, you don't really know what it has.
1: Yeah, it's it's, but it's always impressive. Like I said, the the more I get to know about Nevada, and just you know, like how dry it is, but yet still like unbelievable life and hunting opportunity and stuff out there that's that's out there it's
0: it's you know we've got and a lot of states have these things but nevada's got deer herds it has elk herds it has pronghorn herds we've got the largest number of bighorn sheep of any state in in the lower 48 yeah and three subspecies california bighorns desert bighorns and rocky mountain bighorns yeah and people go what Nevada has the most sheep. How's that possible? You know, because <laughs> it's just it's not it's not an environment where you think that wildlife's gonna, you know, gonna do that well. And and they do great. We have great populations. You know, yeah. like every place. You know, there's areas where it struggles. We do have a really big um, water development program, putting wildlife guzzlers out, both big game and small game. Yeah, and we've got. We've got some great um, groups, NGO groups like Nevada Bighorns Unlimited, that that really come forward. They've developed the primary guzzler tanks that we use. Yeah, that hold water, and they've got they're set up so that small game and large game both can can drink out of those guzzlers it's, it's their patented design. It's a fantastic thing, you know. But we've got a lot of water developments across the state because there are places where there just isn't enough natural water to keep things going there's habitat there's just not enough water so so we help them out a little bit and and get the wildlife flourishing there
1: well well so you probably know this but i don't know if the audience does Do do you know what wildlife drinkers the first ones were called like creating water for wildlife no we were doing how they got their name no their actual name is gallinaceous guzzlers okay (laughs) and they were meant for upland birds
0: birds yeah that makes
1: very the very first thing that we were trying and it happened here in the desert Mm -hmm. um obviously i and i don't know the exact original origin but it was putting why it might have started in arizona but there was there was putting water out for quail um and they wanted it for all these gallinaceous birds you know the upland kind of you know white meat (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) um wild birds and stuff like that but then they found other uses for it which was bighorn sheep and you know they figured oh all wildlife could probably use you know some extra help with water particularly in the desert states and stuff like that
0: we've got Um, we've got all different kinds and we've got ones that are built specifically for small game and there's there's some old old ones that that were put out years ago by the BLM. we call them flying saucers because they're just a dish with a cover over the top that looks like a flying saucer landed up there but we've we've modified them since that point in time but we've got you know small game ones designed just just for the upland birds um we've got ones that are made designed specially for the the pronghorn antelope to come into it's just a small drinker you know out in the valley valley floor yeah and then we've got the the bigger ones and all of them we design them with with rain capture devices aprons Skirts to, yeah. to get your water and and they're fantastic but we still get times last year and uh, in, in 2021 um going through a real dry cycle no rain we spent a considerable amount of time and money manually filling a lot of those especially in southern nevada towards the las vegas yeah. area
1: yeah well a lot of even arizona i mean so many of the states were doing that it was you know yeah. sending water to wildlife because we were We were all in pretty much hurting status um, in that time frame. But I don't want to gloss over something, because I think you just made a connection here, or maybe I just did in my own mind. So you were talking about BLM waters that you call UFOs. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, are you saying that BLM was
0: responsible for Area 51 and the aliens? Like, are somehow, is
1: BLM somehow tied to Area 51? Is that what we're learning here for the first time?
0: You, you need to drop this line of reasoning right now bef- before men in dark suits come and kick our door in. <laughs>
1: I'm just I'm just saying where did they get the idea to design be the waters that way Careful careful hold you're on, treading hold on, on. You're treading on some dangerous there, ground this, there this my friend This could be a serious <laughs> w- we could be breaking news right here like <laughs> something no one's ever put together so Well anyway we've been gabbing for quite a while Russell I think uh I think we should probably shut her down and and go see what libations there might be Okay. No, the bar. <laughs> there was. Look at that. No argument from you whatsoever. You're like, okay, yep, yep, <laughs> <And> that, absolutely. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Russell. I really appreciate it. I'm sure my guests do as well.
0: Well, I, I you know, this is a sort of. If I could do this full time, I would. I love going on podcasts. We, oh, we, yeah. we do them at Department of Wildlife in Nevada all the time, and I'm, I'm always like begging them, please put me on another one, put <laughs> me on. I love to do it. I, I mentioned the, you know, the other one I did earlier that just randomly i got a call from the guy and he was in town swan hunting and like, hey can i come do this podcast and i went and did it and i loved every second of that and i've yeah. enjoyed this so thank you for having me on well we're gonna have to compare notes
1: because my buddy tyler webster from the booze birds and buds podcast says that i should have got professional podcast guests written on my business cards um because <laughs> <laughs> i was on so many podcasts by the time he had, had me on he's like he's like man you're just like on every single podcast yeah sure, same for you we'll have, to, we'll have to compare notes on on
0: how many all these podcasts we end up doing i'm sure you've done a lot more than i have but, well now but, i'm a
1: host it's a whole different <laughs> but like i've always been on a guest on a whole lot of them so but anyway i really appreciate you russell thanks for coming on
0: and, glad uh, to be here
1: um thank you out in the listening audience for listening uh appreciate you as well and uh come check us out for the next episode